This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 1st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What qualifies someone to be the Director of National Intelligence? And what are the costs of filling that office with not someone with decades of experience in intelligence, but instead a fierce partisan and a loyalist to the president? Representative John Ratcliffe appears to fit that bill. Cato's Julian Sanchez discusses the important and subtle ways a DNI can drive policy. Who's had this job even just in this administration? Um, so when you look at the history of this office, uh, Ratcliffe, Representative Ratcliffe certainly sticks out as someone with with by far the thinnest resume of the batch, at least, you know, uh, relative, relevant to intelligence work. Um, currently, we've got Dan Coates, a former senator who uh, served for many years on the uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, had before that uh, been ambassador to Germany, had before that been in Congress for many years. Um, he was arguably maybe the one with the least relevant experience to that point, but um, someone with a, a long history in both intelligence oversight and uh, diplomacy. Uh, we had James Clapper, uh, certainly not someone I'm you know a fan of on on number of levels. Uh, he uh, I think really um, diminished his office when he uh, misled Congress about uh, the existence of a bulk metadata collection program. But if you look at his fitness for the job in terms of experience, he certainly had it. Uh, decades of uh, service to the intelligence community, including directing the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency uh, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. I don't think anyone could uh, question his qualifications, again, as a matter of experience. Uh, uh, Dennis Blair, uh, four-star uh, Navy admiral uh, who had worked in uh, some intelligence roles during his uh, long career with the military. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, the statute that creates the office suggests that uh, the the director of national intelligence or his deputy should uh, have uh, some kind of uh, substantial uh, training and experience in either the military uh, or intelligence work. And if you look at Representative Ratcliffe, it's just uh, sort of night and day when you compare. This is someone who was a small town mayor uh, in Texas for many years, uh, served in, uh, now serving in Congress since uh, 2015. And really his only relevant intelligence background is uh, sitting on the House Intelligence Committee. And he's only been doing that for seven months. Um, so, you know, when you compare sort of the the background and the resumes there, this really does feel like sort of elevating someone from the, the mailroom to CEO. Um, I think it's, you know, potentially a healthy thing to have um, a DNI, at least sometimes, who is uh, has a background in intelligence and experience with intelligence that comes from outside the community, uh, maybe in some oversight capacity or some other, uh, uh, you know, even scholarly capacity. Um, but it's hard to imagine that but for uh, his vigorous attacks on the Mueller investigation and the Russia probe, Ratcliffe is someone who would ever be on anyone's list for consideration for this role. Describe what the job is. The, the DNI is a, is, a, is a very important job. They uh, meet with the president regularly. Uh, what What is the substance of the job in terms sure. of... Uh, overseeing these uh, intelligence agencies? Sure. So the director of national intelligence um, is a position that was really created 
uh, in uh, 2005 uh, on the recommendation of the 9-11 Commission, which suggested that um, we might have been better prepared for the terror attacks of 9-11 um, had we had a, a, a sort of central clearinghouse, a, a coordinating entity uh, to ensure uh, information was flowing appropriately between uh, the 16 different components of the intelligence community. Um, right, you have a lot of a lot of different cooks at the pot there, and so getting them to work together, uh, the 911 Commission said, was was uh, an important reform. And so, really, the the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, is primarily about coordinating and synthesizing. Uh, the efforts of the other 16 intelligence agencies or you know, agencies with intelligence components. Uh, and so uh, the DNI is in charge of the president's daily briefing. And so in, in a way is the, um, the most sort of direct point person in, in terms of uh, being in contact with and advising and briefing the president on intelligence issues is uh, the statutory sort of intelligence advisor to the National Security Council. Uh, also has uh, sort of budgetary and and some personnel authority over uh, various of the other intelligence agency components, so he can, to some extent, control the flow of congressionally appropriated funds and. Uh, uh, transfer personnel between uh, agencies was, as he deems necessary. Um, but it's really a sort of synthetic role. There's about 1,500 staff under uh, the, the DNI, and a lot of that is various kinds of, again, sort of synthetic uh, or, or coordinating uh, entities like the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center or the National Counterterrorism Center. Um, so Really, the DNI is about being a central clearinghouse, but it's worth noting that the, despite the, the um, authority over uh, the, the flow of appropriated funds and uh, to some, in some cases, approval over major acquisitions by some of the agencies, um, you know, this isn't someone with direct authority over the other agencies. That is, um, you can't, he can't directly order you know, someone at uh, CIA or NSA uh, to do something in general um, as, as a matter of, sort of direct authority. And so this is a role that, that to some extent, um, though he does have some real teeth and some real authority, um, also substantially requires like, cooperation and you know, uh, therefore respect from the other agencies. So, with respect to that, if you if you say that these you know these other agencies do not report to the director of national intelligence, um, you know how important is it then if if it's uh, if it's a job that that where uh, this guy can't extract what he wants directly from agencies when he wants it, is it is it uh, a big concern or why should we be concerned if if this person isn't necessarily as qualified as people who've had this job in the past well so i think one one issue is um just that again uh, this is a role that to some extent again he's got some levers uh to exert to exert power but um you know requires uh, in a sense, the willing, the willing participation and cooperation of the other agencies um and honestly that would be true almost Regardless of the formal authorities, in part because, um, you know, a, a previous DNI, uh, James Clapper, testified before Congress, I think during his confirmation hearings, that the only uh, entity with visibility on all special access programs, all the, the different uh, 
uh, balls the intelligence community has in the air is God. Um, it's so vast and so complex that uh, even if you can sort of formally order anyone to do anything, the um, you really sort of need the willing voluntary cooperation of the various agency heads and components um, to be properly apprised of, of, of what's going on. Um, and again, you know, there's staff to help with that, but um, this is the kind of thing where unless he's sort of running to the president on a daily basis, um, it matters whether this is a role that's held by someone who is held in esteem and, and uh, you know, seen as trustworthy and competent. So what are the risks then of intelligence agencies that are supposed to work with uh, the director of national intelligence not having particularly high regard for uh, whoever's in that post? Well, I think just it naturally will make that person less effective. Um, you might see uh, hesitancy about uh, sharing certain, certain uh, things, especially if um, there are doubts about what his sort of intentions or or function in that role are like the two sort of main issues with Representative Ratcliffe um, are that he he doesn't really have anything like the experience you would expect for someone uh, who's essentially the head of the intelligence community to have, and second that his actual qualification for the role seems to be his attacks on. Uh, the Russia probe and the Mueller investigation uh, and what he sees as, as malfeasance by uh, some of the intelligence agencies uh, related to uh, the Trump campaign and, and Russian interference. And that those two problems sort of feed into each other, um, you know, to the extent he doesn't have the stature to kind of command respect um, by dint of his own experience, he is naturally going to be much even more dependent on the authority of the president on the, the perception that he's got the support and ear of the president so that, uh, you know, whatever he can't do directly, the president will order. Um, but that in turn means he has a lot less flexibility, I think, to sort of tell the president things he doesn't want to hear or say, no, I, I don't think we can do that. And that's not appropriate. Um, you know, one of the reasons it's sort of widely believed that DNI Coates and uh, Donald Trump ended up having a sort of strained relationship is that Coates would often say things that would either contradict what uh, Trump was saying or uh, were in various ways politically inconvenient. So he would publicly say, uh, in fact, we still see uh, North Korea as a threat pursuing uh, nuclear weapons capabilities uh, when uh, President Trump was trying to tout his uh, great progress in uh, diplomatic outreach. Uh, he repeatedly uh, confirmed the intelligence community's uh, unanimous verdict that Russia had, one, interfered in the election, and two, uh, done so at least in part with the goal of assisting uh, then-candidate Trump. Uh, Trump has both during the campaign and uh, in his role as president uh, vacillated between sort of grudgingly uh, uh, conceding that that was the case and casting doubt on it and you know, raising questions about, well, you know, where are the DNC servers and maybe it was an inside job. Um, obviously, Trump did not particularly care to be, uh, to have, you know, the, the DNI or the intelligence community uh, saying things that were true but inconvenient uh, at inconvenient times for him. And so, 
you know, the, having someone in that role who is more dependent on the president because they lack independent stature, um, especially when, in a sense, they're being picked in the first place um, because of their willingness to uh, mount attacks essentially on the intelligence community that fit the president's narrative uh, makes for, I think, a, a, a tense uh, situation going forward. I think you're going to have other elements regarding him with a, a certain amount of suspicion. You're going to have him leaning on the White House uh, essentially to to get things done and to, to try and uh, assert his authority, um, which in turn is going to make him, assuming he's confirmed, um, maybe much less free to do things that antagonize the president, uh, or at least, uh, you know, that contradict what the president would like to hear, which is in a sense the job of, of a DNI and of the intelligence community more generally. Um, you know, in in justifying why he uh, is, continues to call into question uh, this pretty much unanimous verdict of, of Russian electoral interference, um, he sometimes points to the war in Iraq, the intelligence suggesting that Saddam Hussein was pursuing weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and of course, that is a case where the intelligence community got things wrong. But I think the record shows that that was really in substantial part a problem of politicization of intelligence, of uh, of sort of stovepiping of uh, intelligence that confirmed what uh, the sort of political uh, bodies wanted to hear. Uh, there was a political decision made um, for, for a variety of reasons that it would be desirable to go into Iraq. Um, there was a certain level of conviction that they were, in fact, pursuing weapons of mass destruction. And so, um, you know, internal doubts were sort of suppressed and intelligence confirming that view that they wanted to have confirmed funneled up. Uh, and so it's, it's in a way ironic that, that this is an example Trump should seize on because that is a uh, really quite grim illustration of the dangers of uh, intelligence that is shaped by uh, what the White House uh, or any other uh, political oversight body um, would like to be true or finds it politically congenial to be true. Uh, and uh, I don't know if uh, it's, a, it's a permanent risk in intelligence. The two, um, the two real, the Scylla and the Charybdis, right, of, of intelligence uh, have always been uh, too much politicization and insufficient, in, in a sense, political control, right? There's, the risk on the one hand is that the agencies are not really uh, effectively subject to uh, the command of the civilian authorities, that they end up uh, you know, developing their own agendas uh, and, and pursuing them sort of irrespective of what uh, the nominal political superiors want. And then, of course, the flip side, too much politicization, um, too much uh, ginning up whatever those above them would like to hear rather than telling inconvenient truths. Um, and I think you know, in, in, in this instance, uh, we have a kind of perfect storm set up for uh, an intelligence community that is in a way not doing its core job because it is being run by someone whose really only qualification for the job is uh, saying things the president found politically congenial. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.